Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. They put that system in a few years ago after a break-in. Don't worry. Neighborhood's a lot safer now. I just moved here. I don't really know anyone. What brought you to L.A.? Trying to start a new life. Missed one here. Any pets? Nope. You got it. We're neighbors. Hey, listen, we're having a barbecue. You should come. Welcome. We like to make this place feel like a real neighborhood. And we all kind of take care of each other here. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 305. Out now in Australia on DVD and digital is Apartment 1BR, a psychological horror that stars Nicole Bryden Bloom as Sarah, a designer with aspirations to make it big in Los Angeles, only to find herself in the grasp of a sinister cult. Engrossing, intense, and absolutely re- relevant. Apartment 1BR has proven to be the breakout horror hit of 2020, and I'm happy to say that joining me on the podcast now is a writer and director of Apartment 1BR, David Marmore. David, I thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's really interesting. I've been reading up uh, a bit about the history of this movie, and you said before that the movie itself has some basis uh, of your own personal experiences of moving to Los Angeles some time ago. Can you just uh, delve into that a little more for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously not uh, in in any literal sense. Um, uh, the apartment I I lived in when I moved was not, um, you know, home to a sinister cult. Uh, but the the movie really came out of the feeling that I had when I when I moved to LA and I lived in an apartment that's really quite similar to the one that that's in the movie. Um, you know, I hadn't I hadn't lived in this kind of environment before. You know, yeah. I um, you know I came from relatively I came basically from a university town in Northern California, um, which was very kind of suburban. Um, and then you know I'd been to college and so forth, but I had never sort of moved all by myself to a city where I didn't know anybody. Uh, and Los Angeles is a particularly anonymizing city. Like you, you, you move in there, you know, and so many people move in there with big dreams as I did. Um, and then you get there and and it can be overwhelming because you just feel lost. You feel like you are just in a sea of, of people. Um, and I found that the apartment felt kind of like a a microcosm of that or or in some way, Mm. you know, you're, it's very beautiful. Um, you know, these apartment complexes in LA, they have palm trees, they have pools, there's sun, um, so it's, it's, it's like weirdly incongruously cheery and you, you'll, you'll wave to people on the breezeways and so forth, but it never, I found it never went past that. I didn't know anyone's names. You know, I was sharing walls with these people and I didn't know anything about them. And it, there was something frightening about it. Um, you know, without anything having to happen, um, it was scary to me living in that environment. And that, that was really the seed of it. That's really what got my wheels turning um, and, and starting to think about, you know, the horror of that kind of environment. How soon did your fears, fears and your thoughts 
come to you writing down some ideas on paper? Was it pretty much as you were living in this apartment? Yeah, I was in fact living in, I mean, I wrote the entire first draft. I probably wrote a couple drafts of it while I was still living in that apartment. Um, and, uh, you know, it, which was helpful um, because, you know, I didn't have to look very far for uh, inspiration. Um, and and a lot of the characters, um, you know, sort of characters have, have changed and um, combined and so forth uh, over the drafts that I wrote. But um, there's still, you know, several characters in there that that really are very closely based on people that I observed at this apartment complex. Um, in particular, Miss Stanhope, who's this you know, older woman who was, a uh, um, you know, had, had come out to LA to, to try to be an actor years and years and years ago and never really yeah. made it and kind of wound up in this place. She was based on, you know, well, she was a bit of a composite in, in a lot of ways. She was based on a woman that I used to see, uh, up on the third floor, um, when I would come home and she would just, she always seemed to be up there kind of leaning on the, the railing in kind of this like house dress or robe, smoking a cigarette. And, you know, I never knew anything about her. I never actually met her, but I would just see her up there. And she looked so forlorn and there was something so sad about somebody kind of living out their life mm. in, in a way that felt very isolating. Um, and, uh, and, and then I also definitely knew people. There were other people in the complex who, you know, there was one guy who I, I don't want to give too many specifics to, um, you know, so he's identifiable, but he had been the star of a kind of mini franchise of kind of low rent action movies in the eighties. Okay. Um, you know, which I had, I knew of and I recognized him and, you know, he just hadn't acted in, in years and was just living in this apartment, you know, anonymously. And so the sort of that I combined the two of them in some way, this idea of like, you know, somebody who had, who had come out to be an actor and then, and then just sort of faded into, into the obscurity of this place. When you decide to take your draft and reshape it and get it ready for, you know, presentation as a feature, when you look back at what you wrote at, at that time, what's your reaction to the writing that you had when you first came to Los Angeles as compared to all the experience you've had since then and how you write now? Because I don't know about you, when I read my old reviews from, say, 10 years ago, it feels like a totally different person wrote that stuff because you develop a style, you develop, you know, your mm -hmm. experience, all that stuff. What was it like for you when you're reading back on your first draft? Oh yeah. It's very, very much that way. Um, you know, my, my writing style has certainly developed. I mean, I, you know, like, I mean, you can't help it, right. You know, if you, you've been writing movie reviews all these years, you're, you're going to get better at it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you, you gain experience and you learn what works and what doesn't work and it. You know, it's a natural process. And I've certainly experienced that. Um, which is not to say that I feel like I'm a good writer now. I kind of constantly feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And every time I start a new project, I, yeah. I feel very lost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but but the difference now, honestly, is that it doesn't bother me as much. That's really the only difference. I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing when I get into a project. And I still feel like I'm tearing my hair out half the time. But I've taken comfort in, you know, over the years, I, I've sort of come up with a group of friends, um, many of whom have become very successful writers, and they all experience the same thing. Like, you know, nobody is happy writing <laughs> that I know of, at least not the good writers I know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I've come to some sort of peace with that feeling, that anxiety and that sort of like misery um, is not as kind of crushing as it used to be. That's mm -hmm. the main difference. Um, and certainly, you know, I can, it is heartening to look back at my old writing 
and and go, oh yeah, I would not have made that mistake today, or you know, oh I you know I see how I could have solved this problem that I was banging my head against for for months back then. Um, and it's funny because I had a little bit of a microcosm of that experience with this script because mm. I wrote this script, the initial version of the script I wrote a long time ago, um, when I you know was pretty new to LA and I was pretty new to screenwriting um, and living in that apartment. And then I put it aside for years, um, you know, just moved on to other things and um, sort of never thought much of it. And then I wrote a different script that got some attention and got me representation and, and sort of like started my, my career proper. And uh, the manager, there were managers who I, were interested in signing me and they, they asked me, you know, do you have anything else that you, that you can send us? We'd like to see some of your other writing. Yeah. And I didn't have anything else. You know, I'd written this this newer script that I was very happy with and, you know, felt like I had finally sort of found my voice in some way. Um, but I didn't, you know, it was the first one. And so, you know, they asked for another script and the only thing I had that I thought was worth anything was, was this old, you know, one bedroom. Um, and, uh, I dug it out and I had to, I had to do a quick pass to update it because it was really, you know, like the technology had changed and stuff. Um, and, you know, I sent it to them and then to my, surprised they really responded to it i ended up signing with them and they actually ended up as producers on the movie um but uh but sorry to to i'm going about this a very roundabout way but the the point is that like you know that when they they said look i think we can set this up for you to direct um you know then sort of my next order of business was to go back to the script and and rewrite it mm. and like and so i got a chance to kind of look at my writing from several years earlier and feel like oh I see like, I see how to fix this, but not even, not so much even how to fix it. It's just like, it was not the script it, like I wanted it to be. It, yeah. I think part of what happened was, you know, when you're starting out as a writer, it's very easy to feel like you have to fit into genres, fit into kind of what is out there. Mm -hmm. And I had had this idea, but I think when I first wrote it, I thought, oh, you know, it has to, like fit into these kind of horror tropes. Mm -hmm. And um, so the draft I had written was very heavy on, like there was a lot more violence in it. Yeah. There was a lot more, it was, it was almost, I mean, it wasn't quite torture porn, but it was very, there was very much more like physical torture in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading it and going like, Oh, I remember making the decisions to put this stuff in and I never was comfortable with it. It was never what I thought the script should be. And I had the confidence now to say like, you know what? Like, I'm going to take that all out. Like, what I'm interested in is the psychological side of this as she sort of sinks further into this community. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, essentially rewrote the entire sort of middle section of the script. Um, and, you know, I, to my mind, I improved it a lot. I think it, I think it's, it's it, at least it's much more the movie I always wanted it to be. Um, and, you know, I had some misgivings, honestly, that, that the horror community was going to accept this movie because it's, it, you know, it's, it's weird in, in, in terms of horror, like it doesn't obey some of the, the genre, um, requirements in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, that's been one of the sort of like great pleasures of, of the process of releasing the movie is how, how much it has been embraced by, particularly by horror fans, um, and by genre fans, um, who have really championed it. And I, I think have gotten us where we are. When it comes to the development of the script, one thing that 
really struck me about the movie was the philosophies behind the community, um, the cult per se. Um, and their whole emphasis is around cr- trying to create the perfect citizen. And they have like these four tiers, um, which they which they kind of follow. Um, so I think it was um, um, selflessness, openness, acceptance, and security, which is, you know, mm-hmm. sounds pretty common sense, you know, common sense kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. But the way they approach it, of course, is totally off the rail. It's a little yeah. batch, yeah. A little batch, exactly. Um, I'm just curious, though, when it comes to developing that part of it, how what kind of ideas did you have? Did you um, see um, or do research on other types of cults uh, that had kind of similar philosophies as well? Or was this something they kind of took um, on your own and developed on your own over the years? It, it was it was a bit of a hybrid, um, and it was it was it was relatively late in the process. Like the, at least the specifics of like you know the four foundations and the book and like some of their procedures around that um, was all part of this rewrite that I did um, just before we we made the movie. But the philosophy of the of the of the the community was always kind of there in my head in some vague way, um, and the the basic idea of it did come from research, which was. I got really fascinated, you know, when I started sort of looking into cults, a lot of which start in LA. LA is a real breeding ground for wacky communities. Um, But as I started researching that, one thing that really struck me about them was how many of them started with really uh, noble goals. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they did not start out to be, you know, like, I mean, you know, like the Manson family is an exception, right? Then Manson family was, was a little batshit from the beginning, um, but like, uh, you know, th- there's so many of them start with really, um, noble aims, including ones that got really bad. Like, you know, Jonestown, the people's temple, yeah. um, was a very inclusive, very accepting place. Um, it was, you know, it was very sort of, um, uh, open to other races when a lot of places were not, um, and, uh, I was really, I got really struck by a group called Synanon. Mm. which is probably the closest analog to the community in the movie. Um, and they were started in the late fifties by a guy named Charles Diedrich uh, as a drug rehab when there really was not a place for people to go who were addicted to, to drugs. Right. Um, you know, and they were providing this service that was very much needed and, and they were doing it non-judgmentally um, and were quite successful at it in the beginning, actually, um, to the degree that, you know, they were, they got government contracts. <laughs> there was a, a kind of a laudatory, um, movie made about them. Um, but at some point the leader, you know, the leader, I think had kind of a narcissistic personality and it, ultimately he decided nobody could ever be cured of their addiction and, and everybody had to come live, uh, with them. And they bought this big property. Um, and then it, you know, it sort of slowly curdled into this violent, uh, cult. Um, and I, that process I, f- I found really fascinating. So I always felt like I wanted, you know, I, I wanted that sense. And so what I did when I kind of came to think of like, what are the specifics of their philosophy? What I basically did was go like, what do I think would be the, the best way for everyone to live? If we could all live this way, I basically like thought like, well, I'm going to create my own cult. Like, if I, you know, how would I think would be like the, the way to create harmony and happiness? Mm. And, you know, it is largely what they espouse, which is, you know, people not thinking only of themselves, people feeling a strong sense of community, being open and honest with each other, accepting each other um, as they are. 
And uh, I, I basically created that. I tried to create as sort of appealing an underlying philosophy as I could yeah. um, because I thought that would just ring truer in some way and also make it scarier <laughs> in some way um, that it was, you know, that these were people who really believe they're the good guys. So that was a direction I gave all the actors on set was, you know, you guys are the good guys. Like there was never to be any hint of sadism. Um, the, what they are putting Sarah through is they truly 100% believe is for her own good. It's going mm. to make her life better. Yeah. Um, so that, that was sort of the, the way I came to that. The production on the film, you kind of went through your own little apocalypse now uh, with this thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. You had to deal with quite a bit, quite a, a lot of things, actually. I mean, you had um, the wildfires that, that were near there. That, they're pretty much yep. almost um, shut down production, didn't they? Yes, yeah. So the, the wildfires, I think, were sort of raging within a week or two of when we were supposed to start shooting. Um, and they had to evacuate our production office um, and they were sort of threatening the, um, the area where the apartment itself was, where, you know, the, the, the actual apartment that we were using for the exteriors um, and, you know, making the air quality bad. It was, um, it, was, it was dicey there. You know, if they had gone on for a while, we at least would have had to push production back. Yeah. Um, you also had um, uh, a truck stolen, a lot of goods in it as well. And I think the biggest one that was going back to the Apocalypse Now comparison, you had a, a lead actor who actually dropped out um, with like a few days to go to production. And I think that was a blessing in disguise really because yes. Nicole Bryden Bloom is just fantastic um, as Sarah. Um, yeah. I know she came really late in the production, but what she did on screen was really fantastic because – it's one thing where you can personify what's happening externally to a character through the different yeah. violent means and such, but that getting that internal um, thing that's going on within the character that Nicole did with Sarah and projecting yeah. that with, with such great, um, just such great clarity and poise without going, going overreaching. I think it's just such a great balance that she got there. Um, oh, I agree. I mean, when you are filming her and you're watching edits and all that stuff, you must be thinking to yourself, well, it's a good thing this other person dropped out because we got a lottery ticket right here. Well, I, I would say, I mean, I was, you know, aside from the, the immediate stress when, when the other actor dropped out, um, you know, because it really, like, it happened so late that it really threatened to cancel the entire production. Like, there was yeah. a chance we weren't going to be able to make it. But um, it, I immediately thought, like, this could be a blessing in disguise because I had, I had actually always wanted to cast Nicole. Mm. Um, on purely creative grounds, she had been my first choice. Um, and I think probably the first choice of, of the producers as well. But they're producers and they have to look at the bottom line. And yeah. so, you know, we had had an opportunity to cast this other actor who was... Uh, you know, somewhat famous and, and um, had a bit, you know, big social media following and so forth. And they basically said, look, we, you know, we have to cast her because she wants to do it. And, um, you know, we'll be in the black immediately. And, yep. you know, I, 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 I gave them my arguments against it. And then, uh, and then said, you know, I understand you guys are writing the checks and, and, and I'll make the best of the situation. And to be fair to her, she's a very good actor. I, I got to go to rehearse with her in Toronto um, and she's, she's very skilled. Um, but the, the problem I always had was that she was not right for the part. Yeah. Um, she just did not feel like Sarah. Um, and could it, could it be just to, sorry to interrupt, could it be because she was a familiar face and maybe needing someone with more of a kind of fresh presence was needed to be able to make that role work? I think that certainly is part of it. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the it, it was a combination of that. And just the fact that like her, 
her energy, her persona, you know, on her show and just sort of in life is very forward. It's very, mm. she's a brash person. She has, she's a very striking looking person. Um, and she has a kind of, she has a kind of confidence to everything she does. Um, and it was just, I, I had so much trouble believing that this is somebody who could feel as lost and as um, unconfident as Sarah is at the beginning of, of this movie. You know, somebody that you could believe, you know, obviously Nicole is, is a beautiful person, um, but she is able to, you know, she's able to feel like she could fade into the woodwork, right? That, that she could feel lost. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was like a big, that was a big concern that I had had with this other actor. Beyond that, that I had just been so blown away by Nicole's audition. She put herself on tape. She's New York based. Um, and she had put herself on tape. And I, you know, when I do these auditions, I intentionally give the actors um, very difficult scenes um, because I kind of want to see what they do with them. I want to see how they, you know, I'm not expecting them to get it right necessarily. I just want to see what the choices they, they make. And Nicole was one of the only actors who surprised me with the choices she made. Like she was, she had obviously like understood the script like on an extremely deep level. Mm. And she made surprising and interesting choices just in this audition tape. And then beyond that, you know, what you see in the movie was what I could see on the tape, which is that she is so good at, at without any words, sort of giving us a window into the interior life of the, of the character, which I knew was the number one most important thing for an actor to be able to do in that role because you know, there's a major section of the movie, most of the movie, she is utterly unable to express her true feelings, right? Mm. You know, everything she's saying is kind of the opposite of what she's feeling, or she's not able to say anything at all. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and so much of the movie, it's, it's a subjective movie. We're, we're in her head, we're watching her almost the entire time. And I knew that, like, if we didn't have somebody who was going to be alive in that, if we weren't seeing sort of into her soul at every moment, the whole thing was just going to be flat. So, yeah, I was, you know, even as soon as basically, you know, they offered it to her and she accepted, I, I thought, you know, this is the best thing that could have happened to this production. Final question here, David. Um, I want to talk about a culture of a different kind. I'm talking about social media here. Um, mm. You know, it's really interesting these days, you know, determining a film's success when we were growing up, it had to do or do with uh, what was number one and the video war charts or what was number right. one at the box office. Now things go viral. And when Apartment 1BR came out in the States, and it's titled 1BR for, in the States for anyone listening, um, when that came out, that film went viral. I mean, all over social media, people were talking about it. Um, and no doubt that your people on Netflix and your producers and everything were very, um, very happy with that. Oh, yes. But, you, but yourself, I don't know what sort of presence you have on social media or not, or whether you're like on following that stuff or what have you. Does that, does that going viral, does that jump out of that social media world and hit your world whatsoever? Is there an impact from that when that happens with you? There, somewhat. Uh, I've, I've basically through the sort of distribution of this movie, I have tried to get myself into social media. I've always been very hesitant about social media. And again, you know, like I, I somewhat have the philosophy of the, of the, of the community in the movie, you know, there's this point at which they talk about everybody on their little devices and, and, you know, sort of not engaging with each other 
uh, on a deep level. And I, I've always kind of had that misgiving about social media. So mm-hmm. I have, you know, I've had a Twitter account and an Instagram account and a Facebook account for, for years, but I barely used them. Yeah. Um, and I tried when, you know, when we were just starting to put this out, you know, a social media is part of the marketing now for, for any movie, like the, the distributor has a social media plan and they want everybody to, you know, tweet out, things on specific dates and so forth. And so, you know, I wanted to be a good, a good soldier. And I, I sort of spruced up my accounts and and did it for a little while, but I, I, it's just, there's something about it that I always feel a little bit icky about. And I, I, so I, I've really kind of fallen off on it. You know, I, I have seen, we, there people sort of send me the really the really juicy stuff, the good stuff, um, and probably hide the really bad stuff from me, which is fine. Yeah. Um, you know, like our, our, our amazing composer Ronan Landa, um, is constantly like, he'll, you know, just send me like a tweet that he saw, um, that says something cool about the movie. And like, I appreciate that. And I'm happy to engage on it on that level. Um, the one thing I feel bad about is that like people do, uh, occasionally like tweet at me, um, you know, nice things. And, and I, I, I was trying to kind of like reply to everyone and I, I mean to get back to it, but it's just like, I don't, I don't take the time to like keep up with my social media. Um, and, and so I, I've kind of fallen off on that and I have not been a good, uh, responder to, <laughs> to social media tweets. Well, no, trust me. Like I'm, I'm on there a little bit. I used to be on Twitter, but I, I deleted my Twitter months ago. Just got when COVID. That's a good move. <laughs> yeah, when COVID hit, and then you're at home and you, you get a little batty, and you know, that kind of stuff sometimes can be a little too much. So, well, and I think that Twitter is literally destroying our country, the United States. Like, I mean, yeah. you look at the last four years and how much it sort of empowered the, the worst elements, or in my opinion, the worst elements in our country. Yeah. I think it's been really corrosive. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, a wonderful thing to do is to delete your account. Yeah, that, no, I, I know I recommend everyone else do it as well, because I actually agree 100% on that. And I also agree with everyone when I say that Apartment 1BR is a terrific film, uh, David, and uh, congratulations to you with your movie. I know it's done so well over in the States. I'm pretty sure it's going to do here um, well here as well, because we have a there's a big horror community here in Australia as well, and our films just like, a, like Apartment 1BR is exactly you were saying before you weren't sure how the horror community would really uh, embrace it. I think a lot of people will embrace it here just as much as they did in America. And um, David Marmora, I thank you very much for your time today. And everyone listening, Apartment 1BR on DVD and Digital in Australia, do check it out. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.